America. We are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Welcome to Herd Tell. It's Monday. It came again like it always does. Hope you all had a great weekend. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Welcome back to Herd Tell. We took a little time off last week, did some best of shows. We missed you. Glad to have you back. And boy, howdy, did we have some breaking news over the last few days of the end of last week. We're going to get to all that today. A couple other matters before we get to the big ticket one. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about Ukraine. Russia is plundering the grain. A great piece out of Sky News. They actually track one of the grain shipments. A lot of it's going to Turkey. Well, you say, well, Turkey's helping Ukraine, right? And not really. Let's dig into it, kind of like Germany and some other countries. They're doing one thing with one hand, one thing with the other hand, and what's coming out of their mouth isn't matching either. We'll get into that in just a little bit. We're going to touch in on our buddy Neil Parrish. You remember him. He's the MP over in the UK Parliament who decided to watch porn on his phone while sitting in the benches. Uh, guess what? He's speaking out about it, and no, he's not taking accountability whatsoever for it. We'll touch in and update that story one of our favorites in fact she has the most downloaded episode of heard tell ever uh dealing with her missing persons cases we also tied that into gabby patino at the time uh molly mccluskey an exceptional award-winning journalist she's done a little bit of everything an amazing writer a good friend of ours uh behind the scenes has really helped this program out in a lot of ways however she has got an excellent website uh diplomatica global media she takes embassy and embassy properties and it's a lot across streams politics architecture culture history even espionage even love stories usually illicit ones because you know diplomats anybody that's watched an svu episode anytime in the last 20 odd years great great stuff from our friend molly mccluskey so excited to have her back on the program talking about the embassies her great website we're going to really enjoy it's going to be a fun wonderful enlightening conversation with our friend also last segment we always end on some good news good news is sri lanka made it into the good news segment at least from one day we've been covering the terror and horror that that country is going through through economic and political collapse but we got a little bit of good news for him just to balance it out we'll touch on sri lanka in just a little bit first uh elephant in the room uh abortion roe v wade decision finally came down on friday uh in fact it came down right as i was talking and recording our uh, conversation with Molly McCluskey. I ain't gonna lie. We scheduled that for 1030 on purpose because we knew the Supreme Court ruling was going and both of us wanted to talk about something for a little while because that was going to dominate everything. And it did. But let's do what we always do on Herd Tell. Let's turn down the noise for just a second. What does it actually mean? Because everybody's yelling about the Supreme Court. Everybody's demanding that Congress do something. They're not going to. Everybody's demanding President Joe Biden do something. He's not going to. He can't. Congress really can't. Congress should have over the last 40 years dealt with this, and it wouldn't have been in the Supreme Court in the first place, but let's rehash that 
at some other time. What does this actually mean? Because people are screaming that abortion is now banned. People are screaming about abortion is illegal. What does it actually mean? Well, it goes back to the states as we've covered, but not a lot of people are describing that. So let's walk through this slowly. We're going to work off of a Washington Post piece for a minute. Uh, the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade on Friday set off a cascade of anti-abortion legislation that will affect roughly half the country. Here's the deal on this before we continue with the piece. A lot when uh, Roe v. Wade went into effect in the 70s, that overrode existing legislative law and case law, okay? So a lot of the legislatures over the preceding 40 years have either redone the laws or struck them down, or they put in place laws in case Roe v. Wade would come down. Those are called trigger laws, and we're going to get into those in just a second. Every state's dealt with this a little differently, and we'll walk through this. I suspect uh, almost every state legislature, because this is a midterm election year, most state legislatures will be having special sessions and or the regular sessions and dealing with this topic over the course of the summer going into the fall. But let's get to the piece real quick. Without the landmark precedent in pace, this is from the Washington Post. Access to abortion began to change quickly. First, you might want to write some of this stuff down because this is where we turn the noise down and get to what we're dealing with. 13 states with trigger laws designed to take effect if Roe was struck down, prohibiting all abortion within 30 days. Um, these states go like this. So what happened? Utah, South Dakota, Missouri, Arkansas, Louisiana, Oklahoma, Texas, Alabama, Kentucky, and Ohio – those were pretty much automatics. As soon as Roe v. Wade got struck down, these go into effect. These are very restrictive laws. A lot of them are like six weeks or later. Uh, you still, even among that, though, need to go and check with the individual states. Some have life of mother provisions. Some have rape provisions. Some have incest provisions. Even amongst this category, and we're kind of generalizing it just to get through this quickly, even with that, there's exceptions. So you're going to have to go state to state to get some of this information. So that's the first group. States likely to ban abortion within weeks or months, Indiana, West Virginia, South Carolina, and Georgia. Now, here's where we start getting to these states being different. Um, they have either laws or trigger laws, but there's things that have to happen for them to go into effect. Indiana has not passed a strict abortion ban. Uh, the Republican-led state plans to go into a special session and do it. Meanwhile, West Virginia, interesting case. It's a Republican-led state, although that's a recent event, but we'll get into that later never repealed its pre-abortion Roe uh, ban, and it recently added a constitutional amendment specifying West Virginians do not have a right to abortion. So that's how that goes. States where it's uncertain, Arizona, Kansas, Nebraska, Montana, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Virginia, North Carolina, and Florida. Now, Virginia, uh, Governor Glenn Youngkin's already said he's going to call a special session for a 15-week abortion ban. Uh, we'll see how that goes. The other states, again, it's not necessarily political things, just some state legislatures never did any legislation since Roe v. Wade went down or uh, some such. Now, the other group of states, um, states where abortion is legal and it's probably going to stay legal. Again, these are probably going to be mostly blue states. New Mexico, Colorado, Nevada, California, Oregon, Washington, Minnesota, Illinois, Maryland, and all of New England, New Jersey, Connecticut, et cetera, et cetera. Those states are all safe. Now, what does this all mean? Well, some of these states, again, you got to look at every single individual states. Some of these states had 
legislation that was knocked down in the courts, like South Carolina and some others. Now they're going to go in. They have some legal steps they have to take to get those laws put back on the books. Even though Roe v. Wade overturn it, you still have to reinstitute it where the court had knocked it down previously. There are states like West Virginia where they just never did repeal it in the first place, but they passed a constitutional amendment. And then there's a lot of those gray states we were talking about on the graphic that we're working off of here, where they just didn't do any legislative at all, so they're not exactly sure. This is going to be a state-by-state process, and it's going to be hard to keep track of it, but that's how you're going to have to do this. You have to parse this out, because the broad brush stuff isn't going to work. So yes, I understand Roe v. Wade went down. I know all the signs and the protesters and their headlines are abortion is banned, but it's more nuanced than that. It is very, very important when you're dealing with a very hot topic that we are specific and we are accurate. So you're going to have to do the homework on this thing. You're going to have to deal with it on the state-by-state basis. Which state has laws? Which state are going to put in laws? Again, I would suspect almost every state legislature in some form or fashion is going to be doing a session and dealing with this situation. They're going to have to. It's a midterm election year for nothing else. Abortion, one of the reasons it's so hot, is one of the highest fundraising issues there is. So everybody's going to want to touch this. Everybody's going to want to at least go through the motions of dealing with it. This is going to be a red hot political summer because of abortion stuff. But again, and I'm going to keep reiterating this over and over again, you cannot have a 30 second soundbite headline, cry on, talking head, whatever, that completely covers what's going on now and what's coming for the next couple of months, and I would postulate probably for the next couple of years. This is not the end of the abortion debate. This is the end of the middle of the beginning of the abortion debate. We spent 40 years getting to this point. We're going to spend at least the next 40 years dealing with all the fallout of it. Get the accurate information, get the accurate state-by-state information, and go from there as you go forth in the discourse on this, what is going to be one of the toughest, most emotionally fraught topics we ever cover. Be accurate and try to be nice to each other as much as you can be. More Hertel right after this. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Welcome back to Hertel. Okay, an astonishing piece of reporting here. It is audiovisual, so make sure you go to the links because they've got some really cool graphics with satellite imaging and other things to back all this up. Sky News, uh, that's news.sky.com. And again, we will link to it. Make sure you go read the whole piece. 
Russia, and we've known they were doing this, but now we have a lot of evidence. Um, the Disappearing Ships is the name of the piece. Russia's Great Grain Plunder, we already talked about. Part of the side story that's going to affect a whole lot of people outside the war zone is Ukraine is, they used to call it the breadbasket of the USSR. It's actually the breadbasket for a large chunk of the world. So is Russia. They produce a lot of grain as well. But Ukraine feeds a lot of countries in the world, especially in Africa, the Middle East, uh, places like this because of their location. Now, what's happening here is Russia is straight up plundering the parts of Ukraine that they control. The Sky News piece here, uh, again, the graphics on this are amazing. They've tracked one ship as an example from Black Sea through Crimea, through uh, Istanbul, through the Bosphorus, and down to Turkey. Uh, Turkey, of course, is playing both sides against the middle here because Erdogan being, you know, the duplicitous dictator that he is, they're giving Ukraine uh, aid on one hand, but they're also taking the stolen Russian crane, not to mention uh, other alliances they have with Russia on the other hand. So they go through this whole thing. Uh, they show the queues of the trucks stretched for miles and miles. They've got all the video of that. They've got the satellite imaging. And what is happening is uh, these ships are going through the Bosphorus and then they're turning off their transponders uh, so that they're not tracked by the usual means. Um, they follow this one ship as an example of it. They do that in detail, but I want to read kind of the nut of the piece here was why is it going to Turkey? Um, because the port facilities in Turkey, of course, didn't want to comment on them. Why would they? And then they make their way back to the Black Sea and they do it all over again. So here's kind of what's going on with this. Turkey, uh, reading from Sky News, has taken on the role of mediator in the Russian-Ukraine crisis, hosting peace talks between the two sides in March and offering to do so again. It reflects Turkey's balanced approach to the conflict, where they supply weapons to Ukraine, but they've also refused to sanction Russia. It's partially explained by Russia being an important trading partner to Turkey. Uh, by the way, this is not just picking on Turkey. Germany's doing this same kind of duplicitous nonsense over energy, and so are some other countries. Uh, while awaiting stability in the region that was shaken by Moscow's aggression. Yet the shipment of grain likely to have come from occupied Ukraine into Turkish ports could risk Turkey's position as a neutral mediator. Again, they're not really neutral. That's just the front. They're not neutral at all here. Follow the money. Germany's saying one thing, but winter is coming and they want that Russian energy. Turkey's saying one thing, but they want that Russian grain and the Ukrainian grain that Russia is stealing. Follow the actions, ignore the words. Back to the peace. Turkish diplomatic services told Sky News they do not condone the use of Crimean ports to trade with Turkey. Well, of course not, you know, because they never lied to anybody. Uh, the Ukrainian ambassador to Turkey confirmed they were working with the Turkish authorities to start legal proceedings against those involved in this trade, but he also acknowledged the difficulty in investigating the grain shipments because Turkey's in on it, which he believes are at least partially being orchestrated by the Russian military intelligence. No kidding. When these ships come out of the ports of Turkey, for example, they present documents showing they're not coming from Crimea, even though we can watch them on satellite coming from Crimea. They say they are coming from either a port of Azov or Kazvaks or the Russian territory, so they falsify the documents. They specifically organize this process. U.S. Foreign Secretary Liz Truss visited Ankara this week to agree to steps that would enable the safe and legal export of Ukrainian grain by Ukrainians. Said we are working to get the grain out of Ukraine. Putin is weaponizing hunger. He is using food security as a callous tool of war. He has blocked Ukrainian ports and is stopping 20 million tons of grain from being exported across the globe. But where he is sending it? To his allies. He's sending it to Syria. He's sending it to Turkey. He's buying people off with it. Meanwhile, people in other parts of the Middle East, and especially Africa, 
are going to be starving and dying because of food shortages. We've also talked about places like Sri Lanka who are being affected by fuel prices and food prices based off this war. Putin's killing a lot of people right now, and they're not all on the battlefield of Ukraine. And a lot of governments like Turkey, like Germany, are being very duplicitous in their dealings with Ukraine. Ignore what they're saying. Watch what they're doing. Because if they're taking stuff from Russia with one hand, doesn't matter how much aid they're giving Ukraine with the other. They're not really supporting Ukraine. They're just doing business as usual. More heard tell right after this. back to her tell it has been way 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 too long we keep trying to organize this and she's always busy or i'm in the hospital or some screw something's <laughs> going on but she is currently the holder of the most downloaded episode of her tell of all time she is a fantastic journalist and on her own right she has a long list of credits that we won't go through here but she's legit folks she's a great journalist but we're going to talk about her little passion project she's got going on now molly mccluskey my very good friend it's so great to have you back on the program welcome back it's so nice to see you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, see you, because we didn't even have video the last time you were on. That's how long it's been. And uh, the itinerations as her tell has grown and developed, which I will say publicly, because a lot of people don't know, you had a big hand to do with. You have given me contacts. You have given me ends. You've given me a lot of really, really great advice. So just publicly, thank you very much for your help so for kind. me personal. No, no, it's... I don't know what I'm making this up as I go. You know how to do all this like journalism <laughs> stuff. I'm just I'm journalist at Jace. I'm just faking. I it made it all up as I went too, so it's totally fine. <laughs> all right, you have this long uh, career in journalism. You are a fantastic feature writer, quality journalist, but you have aimed at something that I think is really cool because you know, like we do our program, we always call it cultural and politics because there's no way to really unwind that ball. It's always part and parcel. Um, you started doing this thing with Diplomatica with embassies and the reason i love is people's like well, what's the big deal with embassies is like hey embassies that's where all the espionage went down for the cold <laughs> war that's where all the secrets are kept these are in historic homes if you like architecture there's politics there's architecture there's current events because every single country in the world has an embassy in the states so if something going on in the world something goes down to the embassies there's protests there there's support there what got you interested in these because i just love how this crosses so many streams at once well, I was a foreign correspondent and I was covering, you know, I was spending about half the year abroad and half the year in DC. And when I was in DC, I would be a diplomatic correspondent and then use those contacts to help me when I was traveling internationally, as sources and that sort of thing. And I was covering really difficult topics. I mean, I was covering, you know, food poverty in the Congo and I was in Syrian refugee camps and I was covering all these really difficult, soul crushing, like I would come home and not be able to get out of bed stories because I was just so really having a hard time with it and decided I needed something fun, just fun and lighthearted to balance it out as a hobby. And so I would be, you know, interviewing ambassadors or anytime I would do a big international trip, I would reach out to the embassy for things like fact sheets and contexts and things like that, which I was surprised to discover not a lot of Washington journalists were doing. If they were in Washington reporting on the Greek economic crisis, they weren't necessarily reaching out to the Greek embassy for stat economic stats, which I thought was really interesting and an oversight. So 
you know, I'd be reaching out to these embassies and I'd be talking to them. And then I'd say, oh, that's great. I want to talk about your, you know, your economics and trade. I'm an economics reporter and we're going to get into that. But first, tell me about this absolutely gorgeous building that you're in. Because I was just fascinated. A lot of them are in historic mansions that have been repurposed. Some of them are building fully LEED certified green sustainable, you know, embassies. And the way that they were, you know, living in their buildings and honoring the history of their buildings, but also making it their own culturally was a fascinating, uh, fascinating story to me. So I started this little newsletter and thinking it would just be read by my cousins in California and I'd have maybe 10 readers a week or a month or whenever I could get it out. And uh, little by little, I discovered that the diplomats in DC were reading it and then they would transfer out of Washington and unsubscribe and then resubscribe from their new posts and then their replacements were subscribing. And so there really was an interest in this community and this community of architecture and culture and politics that I found so interesting. Everybody else was finding so interesting as well. But it's amazing because one thing, because I lived in Europe two different times, I've traveled around the world. A lot of the older cities like a London, like a, like Berlin or Frankfurt has a lot of consulates in it because it's a financial hub. They have an embassy row. It's like a street. London, you have a street, you know, that's mm -hmm. it's all the embassies. Are we have a little bit of a cluster in D.C., but it's actually kind of spaced out. A lot of it's these historic properties. Then you got like the Czechs who per you wrote a story about how they moved out in the woods on purpose just to get yeah. left alone. And then you have embassies switching buildings every so often. You just covered some of these. It's really a unique thing in D.C. how we do embassies, isn't it? It really is. There is the classic embassy row, and that is still the legacy address on Massachusetts Avenue for a lot of these properties. But, you know, the French and the Germans are, are way out, you know, because they have huge, massive compounds. Uh, there's a second offshoot of International Circle, which is the newer built-for-purpose embassies. We were just talking about them this morning. You know, Tilden has a bunch. Uh, the Czechs, that's where the Czechs moved when it was still the forest, because it is part of the Rock Creek watershed, which is something I've been really interested in exploring is how many of these properties are physically in, like if it wasn't for the national park boundary, these properties would be in Rock Creek Park. They'd be in a national park essentially. So, you know, they're spread out and keep in mind too, it's not just embassies. You said every country has an embassy in Washington, but there's embassies, there's residences, there's military attache buildings, there's cultural centers, there's, I mean, quite literally thousands. I mean, I know a country that bought up an entire floor of condos for their guests when they come to visit, that's an extra 20 properties. If you look at how many properties and how much physical space in Washington is owned by foreign governments, it's quite significant. Yeah, and then you have cities like San Francisco that has multiple consulates. Seattle's like that too because sure. of the tech boom. Um, it's really, uh, Dallas has a bunch of consulates all of a sudden yes. because of, of thing. Atlanta's starting to get some foreign intervention uh even my native west virginia we have a japanese office because we have a toyota plant you don't think about you know uh the ohio river valley in west virginia being a japanese enclave but it is because we got a, a toyota factory these and plus for folks that don't understand and don't really know this maybe other than the movies this is sovereign territory for these countries this gets really really complicated really really fast it does. It does. So most embassies have their, or most foreign governments have their main, you know, their biggest presence in Washington. That's where their ambassadors are. But then there's a large contingent in New York because they need UN representatives. And then most countries will set up, as you said, a consulate where their diaspora are or where there's a major economic incentive uh, as a means of servicing that community. I mean, keep in mind the consulates and the embassies really are, are businesses within within countries. 
Yeah, and it's it's just fascinating how these things work. Okay, let's use an example. Your latest piece, a yes. long-running story that keeps bubbling up. We don't want to just pick on the Catholics, though, because the Southern Baptists have their hands full of the same issue at the moment. Every uh, the, religion. Every religion does. Every religion. Every, yeah. it's, look, we've, we've covered abuse on the show. We've had multiple people on. Abuse in the power structures, it's just a magnet for those kind of people. But the man outside the Vatican embassy, talk about this one, because people like the Vatican has an embassy. Yes, it's a state, and yeah. top of being the Holy See is considered a state. This yeah. this story, I, it was one of those I actually read twice, just because I had to stop and then reread it again. But tell the story of this man, uh, John Wojnarowski. I hope I'm saying that right. Was, outside yeah. the Vatican embassy. So John um, is an adult survivor of childhood sexual abuse by a priest, by a Catholic priest, from when he was growing up in Italy. He's Polish born, grew up in Italy, which is where the abuse happened, and then. He moved to Canada for a while, worked on jobs, and then moved to the U.S. And in the late 90s, when lawsuits started bubbling up against the Catholic Church, you know, he realized, hey, I, I might actually have a claim. And his intention was really acknowledgement. He hadn't really discussed it. Nobody in his family knew. This was something that had deeply impacted his life in many ways. As you know, with sexual abuse survivors and trauma survivors, childhood trauma survivors, a lot of times it's difficult to maintain relationships, maintain steady employment, um, deep internalized shame kind of guides a lot of decisions that you make in your life. John said he basically married the first woman that talked to him. Um, they have a very good relationship now, but he, you know, was they were together for 30 years and he knows that he put her through a lot of pain because he had dealt with his own issues. So in the 90s, when these, you know, survivors started coming forward, he, he went to the Catholic Church and he said, hey, I'm an abuse survivor and I need recognition and I need compensation and I need, I, I need this to be a thing now that, that I'm talking about it and I get acknowledgement on. And, you know, the Catholic Church, as they do with many of these cases, basically said, nope, sorry. Um, sorry, uh, you're, this happened too long. If it happened at all, it happened too long ago. There was no way to um, prove that it had been abuse. I believe he was 14 at the time. I'd have to check my article. But... Uh, and they said, no, you probably, if it did happen, you probably wanted it. It was consensual. Uh, and by the way, your alleged abuser is dead now. So too bad. And you're out of luck. And he basically said, yeah, you know what? That's, that's not going to cut it for me. That's sorry. And so he, you know, he lives in a suburb of Maryland that's close to Washington. And so he started coming out and protesting at the Vatican, which at the time did not have a fence. And I get into that in the story a little bit, but it was just basically an open lawn. And he would come out and he would stand on the corner and with his signs and he had flyers made up and he would hand out the flyers. And keep in mind, too, this was, you know, pre-Spotlight at the Boston Globe, which was 2003, I think, and pre the movie. And so people, you know, did not take it very well. And at one point he claims a cardinal spit on him as he walked by. And at one point he said that he was sur physically surrounded by priests um, and verbally accosted and threatened. And so, but he didn't stop. He came out every day for years and years and years. He's now, I believe almost 80. And so he doesn't come out every day anymore, but he comes out a couple times a week. But this was his life. And this is 24 years that he's been doing this now. And he's a fixture in the neighborhood, but the odds of him getting any kind of justice or acknowledgement or compensation are very, very slim. It's, you know what struck me about this? Molly McCloskey joining us from Diplomatica Global Media. 
what struck me about this is we've covered a lot of protests the last couple of years, whether it's Black Lives Matter, uh, January 6th, although that turned into a riot. Now we're finding out about all the underlying things with that. But, you know, started as a protest. Take whatever you want. We've dealt with protests a lot the last few years. That's not what this is. This is this one guy. And it reminded me that episode that did so well of her tell we talked about where you were out on the reservations. There was a part of your story about the missing uh, women on the reservation where you had, I think it was three or four women just walking down the highway with signs protesting. And it was such a start because that's out in the middle of nowhere. Right. And it, it was just one of those. This is all they've got to do. So they're protesting. That's what I thought of thinking about this guy's like. This is one guy. This is so different than the media coverage or a mass movement or it's organized by social media. This is one dude since what, 97, 98? He's been 98. doing this? 98. 98. Yeah. This is one guy just, he's like, yeah. hey, this is all I can do and I'm going to do it. And he keeps doing it on a human level because you've covered big stories, you've covered small interest stories. That just struck me on a human level. How did it hit you? The thing that's so interesting about John, he's so painfully shy. I mean, he's at one point, as he was talking about his abuse with me, he stopped and apologized and censored himself because I was a woman and he wanted to be delicate and he didn't want to offend me. But the thing that's so, so poignant to me is that John is not trying to raise abuse of all of sexual abuse within the Catholic Church. Right? That has been covered. That has been blown wide open. I mean, there was a Chilean priest arrested a couple of weeks ago for child abuse. I almost got into the different cases that are actively pending right now around the world, and it would have been a different article, right? Yeah, the bishop in Australia. There's a lot of really messy yeah. ones. And I should also say, too, so I was raised in, a, in the Catholic Church. I watched, you know, my generation destroyed by this. Almost, you know, at least one person in every family that I knew growing up had been assaulted by a priest. Um, my mother had been abused by a priest when she was younger. So this was a very uh, poignant topic for me. It's a very painful topic for me. So as I was talking to him, the thing that really struck me was he's not on a mission to unveil this worldwide. He's not on a mission to stand up for sexual assault abuser, uh, abused you know, victims around the world. He wants somebody to acknowledge from the church that this happened to him. He wants somebody to acknowledge and compensate him the way that he saw. He sees the gross unfairness of it all. And that was what really struck me. Yeah, Molly McCloskey, Diplomatic of Global Media. It's amazing what you do with these stories because you start with these grandiose buildings and all this power. But it always comes, no matter what the story, whether it's espionage or there's there's a lot of lovers and things like that. And there's it always comes down to just good old fashioned people stories, don't they? Yeah, it's always people. I mean, there's the thread of ghosts that run through all the stories, right? Because so many of the embassies are claimed to be haunted. And so there's, you know, who is haunting this embassy and what's their deal, basically, was is a fun is a fun thread for me. But I really like bringing together the history of that particular building with what's going on now. I mean, the Monaco ambassador's residence is a perfect story of that, right? That was, I wrote that during the Trump administration. That was Warren G. Harding's old house. That was the, you know, uh, the precursor to the veterans, you know, the, the veterans administration. That whole story had so many echoes in what was happening with the Trump administration that it was hard. I didn't even have to explicitly say it. It was just super obvious. Yeah, people that think Trump was a little uncouth, they should read up on Harding sometime and the Oof. stuff he was getting away with. 
Oh, my goodness. I, I mean, he makes Clinton look like a piker. Uh, Molly McCluskey <laughs> joining us. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to take one of those particular stories right out of the headlines. Ukraine, Ukraine's embassy, crossing a lot of streams again of history, politics, current events. We're going to get into that. The great Molly McCluskey joining us right now on her tell right after the break. tell we have molly mccluskey of the fighting mccluskey she's one of the journalist people but she's one of the good ones i promise she's got good stuff make sure you're reading and following her uh let's talk ukraine because you covered the ukrainian embassy this is not unusual though because when some world events happen whether it's a diaspora or the you know the expats or just you know the working population whatever the case may be embassies become gathering points and that became true when russia's illegal invasion of ukraine we've been very clear on this program where we stand on that vladimir putin's one of the worst actors in the world uh as usual the ukrainian ambassador and the uh, ukrainian embassy became a focal point for both protests and support that's not unusual but that building has some interesting history that crosses some streams again doesn't it that building does have some history. So that building is the site of the dinner that George Washington held when he was trying to convince Washingtonian landowners to basically give up part of their land to build uh, the nation's capital and move it from Philadelphia. And so that building, more than really any other building in Washington, I mean, top five maybe, is one of the oldest and one of the most historic and one of considered the most critical to Washington. History. Yeah, and uh, something our lawyer friends, one of the most important foundational legal cases, Marbury versus Madison, that for folks that don't know, that basically established the Supreme Court and judicial review, one of the most important parts of our separations of power, especially on a day like today, we're recording this on the Friday when the Dobbs decision and yes, we're recording this as Dobbs drops on purpose, so we don't have to talk about it. Um, Mad- Marbury versus Madison is one of the foundational parts of our government, and that touches on that building. Yep, Marbury was one of the owners and residents of the of the house. Uh, he lived there for quite some time. He wasn't the builder; that was Forrest, uh, but he moved in after Forrest and was one of the people that was at that dinner that helped decide that that the nation's capital was going to be in you know at the time it was basically Georgetown um, and named after the British king, and that it was going to be it was going to be here in DC. Normally Otherwise, we'd about- also be in Philadelphia. Yeah, well, who wants that? I'm kidding. Yeah, Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Great. Uh, Philadelphia. I've lived in Philadelphia. It's a great city. I love it. As long as the Eagles aren't playing and winning and or losing either one, then you got to kind of watch yourself. And, the, and it's a horrible airport. I'm sorry. It just says I've flown all over the world. I'm an air transporter by trade. It's a terrible airport. One of the cool things about this building, though, is you actually have an old photo of it, which a lot of these buildings, for whatever reason, they didn't photograph them that much. I love this quote, though, from the historic houses of Washington, D.C. I'm not sure the date on this. You can tell me. But it said, quote, one of the worst looking, most dejected buildings in Georgetown. That's Georgetown with a hyphen for some reason. At the present day is 35, 3350 M Street, a structure certainly deserving better treatment than it has received. The photo of it, 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 it looks like something out of a spaghetti Western. It's black and white with wood frame door. I mean, it does look, you, you could never tell that was in Washington, D.C. I don't know what year that photo was. 
But that's kind of one of those cool things because for whatever reason, a lot of these buildings, they didn't really document the history as they went along. They figured it out later. But this one, you got that picture and it is kind of a sad state of affairs. It's, I mean, it's rough, right? It's, it's a rough building. It almost, you know, collapsed at one point from disuse and disrepair. It was the site of nightclubs for years and concert halls. And, you know, they were renters, right? These nightclubs came in and rented the place and, you know, didn't necessarily invest in the upkeep of it. Uh, it, at one point, it was purchased by a development company that had all these grandiose plans for it, and they went bankrupt. <laughs> so the building really had, you know, it's amazing that it's still standing, essentially. Yeah, I love this list of names that it held as it was a nightclub. It was, and I'm quoting here, Apple Pie, Casablanca, yeah. Smokey's Groovies, Julie's. And then the exact quote here is it's a poor cousin to the cellar door. The reason I key on cellar door, of course, is because that's the legendary spot where John Denver met the couple that wrote Country Roads and they went back to the apartment and banged out a song that was about Maryland that we have co-opted and claimed as our own. All right, that's my West Virginia <laughs> flag for today. Cellar door, look that one up. Um, but modern day, let's bring it up to the modern. This is not unusual, though. Something like Ukraine happens, the Ukrainian yeah. people and people that, more importantly, Americans who want to support a foreign country the embassies is where they usually go do that. There's a lot of historical background to that, and that's probably going to continue. Why is that, and what's the history to that? So embassies have always been a place where people can go and gather. I mean, when the Lebanon, when the Beirut explosion happened, I mean, my famous, now famous Twitter thread that's been kind of echoed around the world about the, the Syrian man lighting the candle at the Lebanese embassy during the after the explosion, right? Um, during apartheid in South Africa, my friend's dad kept getting arrested for protesting apartheid outside the South African embassy. I mean, it's a way to show either support or protest of a country's policies. You can cause enough ruckus that the the message gets not only to the U.S. government but back home to the to the country's government that you're protesting. It will always be a thing. Uh, I can't imagine it stopping at any point. Russia has received numerous protests, and keep in mind those protests kind of run the gamut, right? So they're they're your standard candlelight vigil protests, your signs and chants protests. Then there have been acts of violence against embassies, which we have seen, right? The, How you doing, um, everyone? I'm talking about you, Turkey. <laughs> I'm just hey, we, yeah. we name names here. The Turkish they they literally so, had a street fight. I mean, yeah. and this was oh, just they, a couple of years ago was so turkey the residence which is where that happened is an incredibly historic building in dc that i won't touch uh because it's you know it's a place where music was integrated in washington because while segregation was still you know the law in dc the sovereign territories as you pointed out did not have to follow those laws and so the turkish ambassador's residence started holding integrated um, concerts, right? Which is incredible. It's an amazing story. But it's also the site where the Turkish president came and ordered the assault of American citizens on American land. They weren't on the, the territorial land of, of the Turkish residents and basically got away with it. And there was no consequence. I think one or two diplomats were expelled as pro forma. But so, no, so that's, that's one of those things where I'm kind of, you know, I'm staying away from that one for a little bit. Yeah, I don't blame you. Molly McCluskey, this is such a wonderful thing you've developed here, and you just rebuilt it from scratch with a hiccup, 
uh, even even <laughs> professional journalists run into the game. I I've, I tell our young voices folks that we mentor all the time. I was like, you got to understand the internet's like the gold rush. The saloons and the dancing girls and the liquors actually making all the money, and that is web hosting, and web yes. designers and the people that are charging <laughs> you money to do this. That's who's actually making the money. You're not gonna make money. Yeah. Uh, so you had a little hiccup, but I'm glad you cleaned it up. Uh, let folks know where they can find it, diplomaticglobal.com. Uh, We're going to link to it in all the show notes like we do, Diplo Global on the Twitter. Let folks know where they can find it, how they can subscribe to it, and how they can support it, because I absolutely love it. It's wonderful stories of nothing else. Plus, like we said, this checks a lot of boxes for if you like history, politics, current events, this is for you. Well, thank you. And I think one of the things that I'm really trying to do in addition to opening the doors to embassies for folks, is to have something fun. I mean, we've had years and years of just drag, terrible news, especially on all of the topics that I cover, right? Climate change and migration and social justice and urban planning. I mean, every possible thing feels like it's just going terribly wrong. So I wanted something fun and informative, but it has transitioned from a newsletter to a solutions-focused newsroom. And for me, that's twofold. One, I want to physically open the doors of these properties to folks that may not know. If you didn't grow up going to embassies, if you didn't, you know, intern on the Hill in, in college, as I didn't, you didn't, you might not know all of the cultural resources and the photography exhibits and the musical performances and all of the amazing things that these embassies are offering free into the public. And so I want to showcase those. But as I was spending more time at these properties during the pandemic, I was realizing how much physical land they have, how much property, how many acres. I mean, Twin Oaks, the Taiwan estate is 18 acres. That's larger than President's Park with the White House. I mean, when you have that much land in a city like DC that has transit challenges and housing challenges and, and all of these issues, what is your responsibility when you own a huge multi-acreage legacy property like that? And not to just call out to an oak, so they're doing a lot of great work, but you know, all of these big, big properties, it was really something that I started thinking about in terms of embassies are satellites of their home, of their home countries. But what if we started looking at them collectively as a micro city? And in some ways that was really very similar to my start in journalism as a small town reporter in Alaska, right? Where if you reported anything in my town of 800 people and somebody didn't like it, they were going to come knock on your door and have a conversation with you about it. And that's really how I've, the approach that I've taken with reporting on these embassies is that there are neighbors, you know, we are their neighbors. We all are coexisting. Let's talk about what that looks like. Let's showcase best practices. Let's talk about what folks can learn you know, from one embassy to another about how they're physically managing their land. So what you're saying is we need to give RFK to a responsible country. Um, that's, a, that's a DC joke. Not a joke. Uh, I think uh, we should give over RFK to DC Parks and Rec because they're awesome. And they they ought to do work. something. Between that and the armory, you could do something. Man, that's a $2 oh billion dollar piece of property. Do you know how much property. food we could grow in Washington? Uh, have a decent state. All right, Molly McCluskey, let folks know where your social media is so they can follow you and sign up for the website real quick before we got to go. Yeah, I'm Molly E. McCluskey on Twitter. I'm Diplo Global on Twitter. I'm Embassy Calendar, which is just a listing of public diplomacy events that are offered free into the public. Diplomaticallyglobal.com is the website. You can sign up there. You can certainly donate. There is a support page if you'd like. At this point, all subscriptions are still free. And I do occasionally organize outings, like I'm taking a group next week to the former residents of the ambassadors of Spain. 
which is the Spain cultural office of the embassy. Yep, and uh, the Ordinary Times crew is doing their meetup in D.C. over Labor Day weekend. They oh, may yay. get you up on some of that. Yeah, please do. So, uh, I won't be there. I'll be having surgery right around there. But oh, that's yeah, how it goes. Molly McCluskey, we will do this sooner and frequently and more often because it's been far too long, my friend. Thank you so much for the time today. You're wonderful. Thank you so much, Andrew. Have a great day. You're the best. quick update to a story we covered a couple of weeks ago um, over in Parliament, and we've mentioned uh, with some of our UK friends, we're going to have some of our UK contributors on this coming week, stand by for that, but uh, uh, from uh, Leading Britain's Conversation, LBC, that's a popular talk show over yonder, former Tiverton and Honiton MP Neil Parrish, now let's pause right here, do you remember who Neil Parrish was? Well, Neil Parrish was the member of parliament who got caught watching porn sitting on the benches in the parliament room. Now, uh, he said he was looking up Dominator, the harvesting brand, uh, as in tractor equipment for, you know, reaping grain and what such. That was not the kind of Dominator he was looking at. I will leave it to you to fill in the blanks there. He got caught doing it. Uh, he says, and I'm kind of paraphrasing here a little bit, but in this interview, we've linked to it. Watch it for yourself. He was asked if he was done in, that's a direct quote, by his uh, membership who outed him or ratted him or whatever you want to call it. And he said, well, yes, he was. This man took no accountability. He talked around it. It's ridiculous. Listen, it is not that hard to not watch pornography when you're a member of parliament sitting on one of the green leather benches in parliament. Like, really, dude, you couldn't, you know, go to your office, go to the bathroom, whatever the case may be. Once again, these politicians, it doesn't matter if they're in the UK or America or Timbuktu, they get to this place where they think they're completely unaccountable and they can do whatever. They forget it for a moment. And then every once in a great while, rarely, like with this guy, they get reminded of it. And it's like their little brains can't process that they were supposed to be held accountable to standards like don't watch porn at work which almost anybody else in any other field would immediately get fired for. He got ran off. Now he wants to make excuses. So sorry, Neil Parrish. No, I don't have any sympathy for you. And it doesn't matter that you were done in by others. You were done in by yourself. Nobody clicked your phone on what you were watching other than you. More Heard Tell right after this. Okay, Sri Lanka features in our good segment in the program. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. 
With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. And we always do, and I know we've been covering Sri Lanka for all kinds of bad reasons. That country is in crisis by every sense of the world, economically, politically, their place in the world. Their people are suffering greatly. Their government is utterly incompetent. There's a lot of cross streams. China's involved. India's involved. America's involved. It's a big old hot mess. However, we get to say a little bit of good news, even though we've been covering them for all these batteries. Now, listen, I've tried. I don't understand cricket. I've tried really, really hard. I know it's popular. I can't get my head around it. Just you want to call me a stupid American? Fine. I can't figure it out, but I know good sport when I see it. And we all know that sport can really elevate and touch us on a human level. That's why everybody gets so wrapped up in it. So let's go to Sri Lanka. Now, Australia won uh, the last day of the one-day international series, but the result was completely overshadowed by the crazy scenes in the crowd. I'm reading from uh, news.com.au, that's an Australian website. Uh, In a touching scene, many Sri Lankan supporters in Colombo wore Australia's yellow and held banners thanking the tourists for visiting the island nations, which is battling an unprecedented economic crisis. Finch, in turn, thanked the fans for being amazing. Finch's team were giving a lap of honor as sections of the crowd chanted Australia and some of the world's cricket commenters commented they had never seen anything like it. This is one of those things you really need to go watch the video for it to do it justice. We have it linked in the show notes like we always do. This is incredible. If you did not know any better looking at this, you would think this was an Australia crowd in Australia. They're all laid out in uh, the yellow and the kangaroo jerseys and the signs and everything. These people, this is why this sort of thing is so special. The Sri Lankans were so thankful to have this escape and for the Australians to come to their country and to get to do this. They were thankful. They cheered them. They yelled. They chanted Australia, Australia, while the team took a lap of honor afterwards. It's an amazing scene. It's a good little respite for a country that has some very, very dark days ahead of time and good on the Australians for doing it. Sport, even in our darkest times, has an ability to elevate it. And this is yet another example, especially for a country that is suffering greatly. We'll continue to cover all the issues at Sri Lanka, but it's good to get them on the good news segment, at least for one day. That'll do it for Herdtel. So let us know what you think at HerdtelShow.gmail.com, at Show on the Twitter. We look forward to hearing from you. So until we see you again, wherever you and yours are, across the street or around the world, thank you so much for joining us on Herdtel. We hope you're well. We hope you're well fed. And we'll see you next time for more Herdtel. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com.